Hebrews 20:20, 20, 20, we see Jesus, increment 3:13, and this November 1st, which some call All Saints Day, along with November 8th message, which will be increment 3:15, will be intensely exegetical and grammatical. I asked myself the question this morning, do Christians need exegetical, grammatical analysis of the scripture? The answer is emphatically yes, and it goes along with the notion that without constant exposure to the word of God, gazing into the perfect law of liberty, we're not going to make it in this perilous times as faithful servants of God. And so we will hunker down on some exegetical, grammatical analysis today, as promised in a previous increment, I think back in 310. And so we will be going to Hebrews 9 for that specifically. And then we're going to consider something about the whole section we're involved with, which is a covenantal aspect of Hebrews, having to do with the new covenant and the new covenant age, the new covenant community. So, Father, we're grateful for this opportunity. We thank you as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ that we can call you our Father, for we are in him and he is in us. And that day has come when it shall be said that we are in him and he is in us, and we all together are in you, Father. Thank you for the life that we have that's hid with Christ in you, in God, and that we have the promise and, in fact, the challenge that we will one day appear with him in glory as he appears in his parousia. Grant us the grace, then, Father, to function in this time in between in which opportunities are afforded the new covenant community that will never be granted again after the parousia. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Offering and sacrifice is the title of today's message. You will see in print, I don't have time to write these all on an overhead, but you will see in the printed version of today's message and next week's message, the exegesis worked out. You'll see the Greek words, the Greek terms, and the, Greek, the English transliteration of those terms to help you <clears throat> in your study. Offering and sacrifice, that's prosphoron and thusion as they're listed in order in Ephesians 5.2, which we are correlating with our passage. Offering and sacrifice. Do they mean the same thing? Can they be distinguished? The answer to that is yes in both parts. Yes, they can be considered the same. Yes, they can be distinguished as terms and expressions. <clears throat> I'm going to start with two affirmations or two theses. First, thesis one, God in his son's sacrifice and offering for sin accomplished that which all the sacrifices and offerings made under the law could never accomplished, accomplish. Thesis two, Jesus' decisive putting away of sin per se is how the elect one indeed, 1 Peter 1.20, in whom we were chosen in love, Ephesians 1.4, was manifested in the last times for you. 
We've been collecting these affirmations in the Hebrew study. We, of course, have 88 of them already in packaged form, and we're building these affirmations, keep collecting as we continue. So the grammatical analysis for prosphoron and kai thusion. Prosphoron, kai thusion, offering and sacrifice specifically. As stated in a previous, inc previous increment, a detailed grammatical analysis is needed with regard to these terms and will be provided in this particular increment. Such an analysis will serve on the one hand to establish the synonymous nature of the keywords for Hebrews, prosphoron, kai, thusion, offering and sacrifice. These happen to be listed in that order in Ephesians 5.2 in a Pauline pathway to Hebrews. So we'll be doing a study that will establish both the synonymous nature of the keywords prosphoron and thusion, keywords in Hebrews, as in Hebrews 10.8, they also appear, which is a quotation of Psalm 39.7 in the Septuagint, English text 40, verse 6. The singular thusion, kai prosphoron, in Ephesians is given as a plural use of them in Hebrews 10.8, as we'll see. So on the other edge of the two-edged sword, we will be seeing in our detailed grammatical analysis that the two terms, prosphoron, kai, thusion, can be distinguished and considered separately. So one edge of the two-edged sword, they can be considered as one or synonymously or even interchangeably. On the other side of the blade, however, the other edge of the two-edged sword, they can be distinguished, and in fact, the PT who wrote Hebrews did distinguish offering and sacrifice. In the passage we're studying, which ends up being sort of an, a micro-apocalypse in Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, that's where we're basically hovering right now in a sort of a holding pattern. The Hebrews author is very sharp, and he wields a very sharp sword, the sword of the word. And we have to do this today. We have doctrines circulating by men who do not do accurate word-by-word -word analysis of the scripture, and so they predict a disappearance, rapture, which is a false doctrine. They speak about bad news being blended with the good news because they don't understand the gospel. They preach a prosperity gospel and give pep talks, which invite hundreds of thousands of people to listen, to hear what they want to hear, and to have their ears tickled and their senses excited. So we need this. We need this. The Hebrews author is very sharp. Hebrews 10.8, which we'll see down the line, Groups together, thusias, and again, you'll see all these words in print, kai prosphora. And also, he will add holocausts and offerings concerning sin or sacrifices for sin in a list of four types of, of offerings and sacrifices in Hebrews 10.8. These are those sacrifices which were and offerings which were customarily offered, and he uses the word prospero there, 
which, which is with, goes along with the word prosphora for offering. They're offered to God under the regulations of the Levitical cultus, all of which God neither wills, desires, or has delight in or final approval of. Sacrifices for sin, offerings, holocausts, whole burnt offerings, you have not wanted, says the psalmist. And that means, as Jeremiah discovered, that God is not interested in giving ultimate approval to these many sacrifices. In contrast, there is his ultimate approval and delight, and as a, fragrance, a fragrant aroma to him, the one sacrifice offered by Jesus on the cross and the one offering of his blood in the Holy of Holies of Heaven with which God is entirely satisfied. And so in Hebrews 10.8, the pastor teacher uses the plural instead of the singular that's used in the Septuagint of Psalm 39.7, so that God will not be viewed as not wanting the singular sacrifice and offering of Jesus, his son, and Messiah. In other words, what he does, and you only see this by minute exegesis, he takes what is in the singular, where it says sacrifice and offering, holocaust and whole burnt offering, singular, you have not wanted. The Hebrews author adapts that to his argument and uses the plural, sacrifices and offerings and holocausts and whole burnt offerings, plural, you have not wanted, in order to show that God was not going to be satiated, satisfied, delighted, or seek, find approval in the many multitudes of hundreds of thousands of sacrifices and offerings, holocausts and whole burnt offerings that were offered under the Levitical cultus. In other words, he will not find final approval in those. These will not satisfy God for the reconciliation of the world to himself. There is one sacrifice, one offering, one holocaust, one whole burnt offering, all of which consist in the Christ event that did bring total satisfaction to God and satisfied for the reconciliation of the world to God. And so the writer is extremely sharp here, and you don't see this if you don't look at the minute exegesis, which we need. We all need it. It's like a book that you read, and the footnotes are in there, and you don't think you need the footnotes, but you do need the footnotes. This, this message today will be the footnotes. This is the grammatical analysis that goes underneath and undergirds the exegesis that we're doing, a theological exegesis of Hebrews. And so, again, the author is very sharp. He takes what is singular and turns it plural to show rather that Yahweh was not satisfied by, that is, did not ultimately want the many sacrifices and offerings offered under the Levitical cultus. So it pays to look at the minute details in exegesis. My question is, and was, as I looked at this verse in Ephesians 5.2, which correlates with our passage, do these two, 
in Ephesians 5.2, semantically reinforce one another, as one lexicon says. And are they here combined essentially for emphasis, as I think Lunita said in Acts 7.42, where God says, it was not to me that you offered slain animals and sacrifices. So do these terms, prosphora, kai, thusias, offering and sacrifice, do these semantically reinforce one another? In other words, are they referring to one and the same thing in what we would know in the Greek analysis as hendiades? A hendiades means two things are mentioned, but they mean the same thing or they are they are aspects of one singular thing. We have that and arguably there is a hendiades in the word pastors and teachers in Ephesians 4, 11, which are one gift, pastors and teachers, as a hendiades would, means, would mean pastors who teach. And so it's one. There are, but there is, on the other hand, a distinction between pastors and teachers. A pastor must be a teacher. In fact, he pastors by teaching or he's no good. A pastor must be a teacher, but a teacher doesn't have to be a pastor. And there are actually teachers in the church that are not pastors. They have the gift of teaching, but they are not pastors who teach. That is helpful in understanding hendiades. A hendiades, again, is when two nouns are joined together, but reference one singular item or one singular person. So is that what Ephesians 5.2 is? Sacrifice and offering, or offering and sacrifice, as Paul puts it. Christ as an offering and a sacrifice of fragrant aroma to God. Is that one and the same? Is it a hendiades? It may be, and we're going to look at that. If so, then the terms may be considered interchangeable, offering and sacrifice. In Hebrews 5.1, and we're looking at, we're going to be seeming to be all over the board here, but I think it's going to come into a fine focus by the end. In Hebrews chapter 5.1, sacrifices, that's thusias, are said to be specifically for sins, however. For sins. You see, we're getting more, we're sharpening our blade here. Huper hamartion. Huper Hamartion, in behalf of, or on behalf of, or for sins. The same understanding pertains in Hebrews 7.27, where Jesus, who is called the guarantor of a better covenant. Guarantor means that he takes up where the parties of the covenant fail. The human parties of the covenant fail, but Jesus, the God-man, does not fail. He is the guarantor of a better covenant, holds up our end of the covenant, because we really can't on our own, obviously. So in Hebrews 7.27, where Jesus, who is the guarantor of a better covenant, according to 7.22, is said to have offered. Here you'll see in print another word, Anna Pharaoh, offered himself as a sacrifice, thusias, for sins once and for all, Hebrews 7.27 uses that wonderful word, ephapax, very intense word, meaning once and for all, without rep repetition, without need of repetition, putting this sacrifice in a sui generis, or a class of its own. 
and as the Brits say, a one-off sacrifice. Once and for all, it says in 727. In Hebrews 8.3 and in Hebrews 9.9, sacrifices, plural, through CA, is combined with gifts, Dora, D-O-R-A, gifts and sacrifices, or sacrifices are combined with gifts, Dora, Te, Kai, Thusie, gifts and sacrifices. In Hebrews 9.23, which we studied very recently, it is called better sacrifices, plural, kratosin, thusies, that are required. Better sacrifices, the writer says, that are required to purify the actual things in the heavens. Better sacrifices than those things that purified the mere replica items of the tabernacle. In the definitive text, Hebrews 9.26, where we are really focused right now and should be, Hebrews 9.26, Thusias, for sacrifice, is deployed rather than prosphora. However, in Hebrews 10.10, that's where we're headed. See, I've got a exegetical archery here. There's an arrow pointed to Hebrews 10.10, a significant text also. The word prosphora is used for the offering of Jesus' body as it is used for offerings, plural, which appear along with whole burnt offering or whole burnt offerings in, they're called holocaustoma in Hebrews 10.8, which again cites Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which, again, without causing confusion, you'll have this in print, so it will eliminate confusion. The Septuagint of Psalm 40 in your English Bibles is Psalm 39, 7 through 9. Hebrews 10, 5 has Thusion Kai Prosphoron. Thusion Kai Prosphoron. And that's the reverse order in which they appear in Ephesians 5.2, where Paul has prosphoron kai thusion. So it seems that we are safe so far to interchange the two terms, or at least to combine them as one whole entity, while exercising caution at the same time, as always, by attentiveness to the context. Context is always something to be attended to, the exegete or the student of the scripture or the pastor who teaches especially as well as the theologian has to always walk with caution and care as Ephesians 5.15 says. Prosphora may suffice as the absolute best word for the job in some verses. So offering is the sense and the nuance that is best in some verses while thusias Sacrifice may be the perfect choice in others. But now that we're honing the blade, let's hone it to be even sharper. The corresponding verb to the noun thusias, again, you'll see this in print. This will all be in print, and it's all available in print when I ex edit it for a few more hours. The corresponding verb to the noun thusias, T-H-U-S-I-S, I-A-S, rather, is thuo, T-H-U-O, omega-O. And the verb means to sacrifice, but it also means to slaughter. 
or to kill. In Matthew 22.4, for example, in Luke 15.23, in John 10.10, in Acts 10.13, and most notably, perhaps of all, 1 Corinthians 5.7, Christ our sacrifice, or our Passover, Pascha, our Paschal lamb, has been thuo, slaughtered, killed, offered in that sense, sacrificed. And this also goes to Mark 14, 12. Again, you'll see all these scripture references also in print. So you can do your own detailed study of this and fan it out on your own. We, you need it. If you're a member of Tetelestai Phalanx, we're not settling for general sermonettes here. We're going for the guts, the raw guts of the Greek text. A corresponding verb to the nouns or to the noun prosphora. Prosphora also has a corresponding verb as thusia does. And that corresponding verb to the noun prosphora is prospero, P-R-O-S-P-H-E-R, omega-O. And that means to bring or to offer. It's used in places like Matthew 2.11, 5.23 and following, as well as Hebrews 11.4. However, in Hebrews 5.1 and in Hebrews 8.3, sacrifices, plural, thusias, as well as gifts, dora, d-omega-o-r-a, are said to be that which archpriests have to offer, and that's prospero. So sacrifices, thusias, may be offered prospero. This also argues for the interchangeability of the words prosphora, kai, thusion, which we find neatly packaged in Ephesians 5.2, but become the key word or key words in Hebrews. So the interchangeability of the words is sometimes warranted. However, only thusia for sacrifice, has the direct denotation of death or dying or giving over of life to death or to be killed or slaughtered, while prosphora often carries the connotation of a death having first taken place. So you see in Thusia, the death itself. You see in Prosphora, the death having taken place. And that's a very, very sharp nuance or a very, very subtle nuance in our study. And you say, why do you make it? Because minute exegesis yields to major insight. You don't come to major insights, even like USSJC, the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, just by looking at the Bible generally and reading it in the King James and seeing it in English texts. You come to it through, as I did, many, many years of minute exegesis, and that means intense and arduous grammatical and syntactical analysis in the original languages in which the Bible was initially inspired. And that's a principle that we've lived by now for 40 plus years. So then, 
This argues for the interchangeability, but all the, on the other hand, there is a distinction, a differentiation between the two. If, in fact, let's look at the word blood, haima, H-A-I-M-A, another key word in Hebrews. Blood is offered, it says, prospero, P-R-O-S-P-H-E-R-O, on Yom Kippur. In Hebrews 9, 7, we've learned that the high priest or the archpriest goes in once a year with the blood, haima, of others, that is, animals. The blood is surely the evidence of a death, a sacrificial death that had happened to the animal that had taken place. The blood is the evidence of a death that had taken place. The principle in Leviticus 17.11 and 17.14 is very well known and often misinterpreted. But it says, for the life of all flesh is its blood or is in its blood. In fact, Leviticus 17.11 in the Septuagint translation, which is used by the Hebrews author, says this, for the life, that's psuche, the life, psuche, same word Jesus used in Matthew 20, 28, that he gives his life as a ransom for many. For the life, psuche, of all flesh is its blood, and I, that's God speaking, have given it to you for making propitiation, exilascomai, propitiation for your souls. For it is the blood that makes propitiation for your souls. The eternal word, himself God, became flesh. Notice, follow this now. The eternal word, himself God, John 1, 1 and 2, became flesh, John 1, 14, to be in the category of all flesh. And that means actually to embody all flesh. Therefore, the principle pertains that the life of the flesh of the eternal word made flesh was in his blood, blood which was poured out in death for the forgiveness of sins and which is perpetually offered in heaven for the purification of the consciousness of sins. In Matthew 20, 28, Jesus says that he, quote, the son of man, came to serve and to give his life, psuche, same word is used in Leviticus 17.11, Septuagint, to give his life, psuche, as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many is the same as to give his, pour out his blood for the forgiveness of the sins of many. So there's a wonderful chiming together of Matthew 20.28, with Matthew 26, 28, and a chiming, picture them as all chimes together, chiming with 1 Timothy 2, 6, in which it says that the man Christ Jesus offered himself as a ransom for all. Matthew 20, 28, Matthew 26, 28, 1 Timothy 2, 6. The life, psuche, of all flesh, passe, Sarkos is its blood, haima auto, its blood. And I have given to you upon the altar. The word thusias is found right in the word altar, incidentally. It's thusiasterio. 
to propitiate, that is, make satisfaction for your souls or your lives. It is the blood as life, meaning given over to death, that makes expiation for the soul. Now, the, the verses I just gave you right there are phenomenal and can be fanned out to show the significance of Christ's death in a remarkable way. The New English translation of the Septuagint, N-E-T-S, not to be confused with the N-E-T, the N-E-T-S says this, for the life of all flesh is its blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your souls on the altar. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Now much has been made of this verse on both sides of the debate between the literal so-called and figurative blood of Christ. Either way you view this, however, the eternal word became flesh and in so doing entered into solidarity with all flesh embodied therefore in himself in essence all flesh and therefore into the principle that the life of all flesh is its blood and uniquely the blood of the incarnate or enfleshed eternal word was what God ultimately gave as a gift or poured out on the altar the cross for the atonement. That is for the expiation of sins that resulted in the redemption of the souls of Israel and of all of humanity. The phrase, therefore, the blood of Christ is undoubtedly linked with Jesus Christ's life poured out in death. Let me say that again. The phrase, the blood of Christ, is undoubtedly linked with Jesus Christ's life poured out in death. Now, again, Hebrews 10.8 groups together thusias, kai prosphoros, kai halakautomata, halakautomata, kai perihamartias, and so it should be translated, therefore, he groups together sacrifice and offering and holocaust and sacrifices for sin, sin offerings, as those which are customarily offered, and that's prospero to God, all of which God, God does not will or desire. He doesn't want them, meaning these altogether are symbolic of something, but God does not delight in them as providing satisfaction and propitiation, expiation, or call it atonement if you want even though no such word exists in the Bible per se, atonement. It means expiation or propitiation or both. So God doesn't ultimately approve of all these sacrifices. Now that's what happened in Israel's apostasy. They thought that God was constantly satisfied with them because they kept on offering sacrifices. And that's why Samuel said to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to hearken to God is better than the fat of rams. And then he went in to say this to Saul. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft. 
So you, there was a rebellious, you can be rebellious in your apostasy, as Israel was often, but still do the ritual sacrifices and think you're serving God, but God doesn't want that. He's not interested in it. He's interested in us listening to his voice, first discerning his voice, listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the churches, and obeying. That's what God is interested in. In fact, that is really the true sacrifice of a Christian life or Christian living. So Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.2 this, and keep walking in love. That's the Christian life. Just as also the Messiah loved us and handed himself over for us, an offering, prosphora, as in Hebrews 10.5, 10.8, 10.10, 10.14, and 10.18. And a sacrifice, thusia, as in Hebrews 5.1, 7.27, See, those two little words in Paul in Ephesians 5.2, come like a locomotive, a freight train with many cars, including a caboose, into Hebrews. And so they are called a sacrifice and offering of the fragrant kind. So he uses an olfactory kind of metaphor here. He spoke of Christ's offering and sacrifice and offering to God as something that was pleasing to God. That means much more than pleasing. It means satisfying for the reconciliation of the world to himself. Now, it's true that Christ's offering and sacrifice were made to God. Paul seems to make the offering, which he mentions first, and the sacrifice, mentioned second, prosphora kai thusias, as one thing. And in one way, it can be considered as one Thing, sacrifice and offering, hendiadus. But the two notions of offering and sacrifice can also be distinguished and considered separately. That is what the PT who wrote Hebrews has done specifically in Hebrews 9. He has distinguished the self-sacrifice, Thusia, of Jesus on the cross on earth to God from the self-offering prosphora of Christ before the face of God for us in heaven. This distinction is like the distinction that he makes between the blood poured out for forgiveness of sins related to the sacrifice of Christ unto death and the sprinkled blood for the purification of the consciousness of sins which is sprinkled in heaven. The blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins is associated most intimately with the sacrifice, self-sacrifice of Christ, thusia, and the sprinkled blood with the offering, prosphora, of Christ in the heavenly holy of holies. See what we're doing? We're sharpening the blade. Thusias and prosphora, prosphora and thusias, can be considered as one entity, but they can also be distinguished, and their distinction by the blade of the word of God, becomes very profitable for our understanding. Now here's a dialectic. This is in the commentary on Ephesians, Marcus Bart. Now does that sound familiar, Bart? 
Yes, well, he's the son of Karl Barth. Marcus Barth, in his commentary on Ephesians, observes that, quote, as early as the exile, if not before, a sharp distinction between bloody and unbloody sacrifices was no longer made, meaning that there once was a distinction between bloody sacrifices, like the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and unbloody offerings, such as Christ offering himself to the Father in the heavens with his blood, but not a bloody offering per se. For example, he gives as an example Psalm 40 and verse 6, which we've already referred to, or Septuagint 39.7. This is a psalm that he says reflects Jeremiah's experience. Sacrifice and offering, he says there, are a hendiades, meaning they are one, they refer to one thing, sacrifice and offering, thusia, kai, prosphora, both nouns, but referring to one item or one thing, one sacrifice and offering. He adds, now Marcus Bart adds this, it is possible that the same is true of Ephesians 5.2. So there he suggests what we've already suggested before, that it's a hendiades, H-E-N-D-I-A-D-Y-S. Then he moves into Hebrews territory saying this, and this is where we have to enter into a friendly dialectic with the younger Bart. He says, even this, the author of Hebrews... An enthusiastic student, enthusiastic student of sacrificial matters, did not use thusia in its original narrow sense, says Bart, Marcus Bart. He then cites Hebrews 13, 15 to 16, and then Hebrews 10, 5 to 6, 10, 10, 10, 14, and 10, 18, as examples of, quote, the complete fusion of the terms offering and sacrifice. Now that, again, may be what is intended in those verses, a fusion of the terms sacrifice and offering. But I believe that, and I don't only believe, I firmly state that what the author is doing in Hebrews 9, especially verses 25 and 26, is distinguishing sacrifice, Thusia, from offering, the sacrifice being Jesus Christ's self-sacrifice on the cross and the offering being his subsequent offering of himself before the face of God for us in intercession. And I think that's what he does for the purpose of making an argument. This, his pastoral purpose for the people that are reading his homily, his epistle. And so Barth goes on to say, that he, well, he says, this indicates a complete fusion of the terms offering and sacrifice. But I believe in this friendly dialectic in which I reply to Barth's assertion here, that the writer also goes back to the pre-exilic times when there was a distinction between the bloody and the unbloody sacrifices and offerings. So I agree with younger Barth in the, in the case that the cases that he cites. I also agree that Paul may very well be fusing the two in Ephesians 5.2. In fact, I think that's the case, especially since he mentions prosphora, offering first, and thusia, sacrifice, second. 
Paul even refers to all the aspects of the saving event of God in Christ as the cross of Christ. In, in, well, in, we have that in Ephesians 2.16, but we also have it in Galatians 5.11, and we have the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in Galatians 6.14. But the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the cross of Christ, we also detect a complete fusion of many terms like redemption, Romans 3.24, Propitiation, reconciliation. And so Paul uses the cross of Christ to fuse together many salvific realities. As he also uses the term the blood of Christ, in which there's a complete fusion of terms like redemption, Romans 3.24, propitiation, 3.25, reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5.19. So I also agree that the author of Ephesians, and Bart's not sure that it's Paul. I'm pretty sure that it was Paul. We get that from Ephesians 1.1. But I also agree that the author of Ephesians, and I believe it's Paul, that his theology and soteriology are priestly. And of course, the soteriology and the theology of the author of Hebrews is also priestly. So we recognize also that the blood of Christ, that phrase, the blood of Christ, is a very pregnant phrase because it fuses many soteriological realities. William Lane, as we've noted before, wrote in his commentary on Hebrews the following, the blood of Christ provides a graphic synonym for the death of Christ in its sacrificial significance. Very correct. The blood of Christ, then, is a comprehensive term that contemplates justification, Romans 5.9, redemption, Hebrews 9.12, reconciliation, Colossians 1.20, propitiation, Romans 3.25. But the fact that inclusive expressions like the cross of Christ or the blood of Christ are used in the New Testament as comprehensive descriptions does not at all mean that the various features and facets of the salvific act of God in Christ cannot be considered and studied separately. They can be. They have been. Apostles did it in, as writers of the New Testament. Prophets did it as writers of the New Testament. The evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and the beloved disciple certainly did it. In fact, the death, the burial the resurrection on the third day, the 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, his intercession, can all be distinct acts within the singular salvific event that can and should be and have been the subject for study by the New Covenant community, by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, as well as theologians and teachers in the church in this TIB, this time in between. It is important to see the Christ event in all of its features and to study its features. Paul even made a study of the burial of Christ and its significance. In Hebrews 9, 25 to 26 specifically, and this gets us to focus on the place where we are and have been in our study for some time. In Hebrews 9, 25 to 26 specifically, it seems evident that the Hebrews author reverts to a distinction between the two words, prosphora, kai, thusia, for the sake of argument, 
And he does this, again, for the sake of argument, an argument that he is making to the readers that are tending to drift back and revert to or return to the Levitical cultus for comfort. In doing so, the PT reveals two distinct aspects of Christ's priestly work. Both of them are soteriological or saving. Now, I must say that in the cross of Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of both offering and sacrifice is in one sense present. We can indeed consider Jesus' sacrifice on the cross and his offering of himself to God as a single salvific event, a saving event, a universally saving event, an eternally saving event, an all-inclusive saving event. But we can also distinguish two aspects and even two actions within that singular event, just as we can consider the incarnation, the life lived in flawless obedience of Jesus, the suffering and death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, and the exaltation of Jesus as all one singular messianic event. But we can also distinguish the various important aspects of that event, and this may even be necessary for the accurate handling of the word of truth in the final analysis. If you don't accurately handle the word of truth, then you're going to think that there's going to be a few billion people disappearing in the near future in the rapture. And I have a very strong, imminent expectation of the parousia of Christ, but I do not see it as a disappearance of a few, of a few billion people and the leaving of a few billion more to suffer the so-called Great Tribulation. That's a, that is a result of a failure to rightly handle the word of truth. Well, you can see that's in my craw a little bit, but it should be because it is an error. Something I'm very close to calling a heresy is that rapture doctrine, the false rapture doctrine. There is a true rapture doctrine, of course, and we're beginning to, we will be bridging or broaching that subject in Hebrews 9.28. It should be noted at this point, however, that the Hebrews author does allow for the verb prospero, which is related to the noun prosphora, to be used for Jesus being offered to bear the sins of many. So you see, there is an interchangeability. And that's found in Hebrews 9.28, in fact, which alludes to and partially quotes Isaiah 53.12. In Hebrews 7.27, he does similarly, though he uses the word anaphero rather than prospero, but they're both of the same group, word group, saying that Jesus as archpriest has no need to offer on a pharaoh daily as the archpriests of the Levitical order do, first for his own sins, because he's without sin, and then for the sins of the people. This he fulfilled once for all when he offered on a pharaoh himself. You can look at the sacrifice and offering. I'm closing now. You can look at the sacrifice and offering or the offering and the sacrifice in that order or in its reverse order as one thing, if you want. One event, if you want to. Just as we can say that the single Christ event has, has or comprehends the two elements of Jesus' death and resurrection or even that Christ event, the multitude or the multiple elements of his passion Suffering, that is, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and coronation. 
The Hebrews author distinguishes offering and sacrifice in Hebrews 9.26, 9.25 and 26 actually, in order to sharpen the point, and here's the point of today's grammatical analysis, to sharpen the point that Jesus offered himself as the archpriest to God once, precisely because he suffered and died the singular death that is the wages of sin once and for all. Not just once and for all, but once and for all of humanity. For we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor who tasted death for everyone. You can look at the sacrifice and offering then as one event, or you can look at it in its distinct features, distinguished, and that's what we're doing today. Only one man died the, the death, and this comes into Hebrews 9.27, so you see it's relevant even though this is a Wednesday and this is a detailed analysis. Only one man died the death that is connected with sin inasmuch as his death was the wages of sin, Romans 6.26. The rest of humanity for whom he died dies as the natural end of life in a state of mortality, the natural end of life in a state of mortality, which enters us into a life that is life indeed, life everlasting, life eternal, life in future world in which Jesus is already present. Even death as the end of human beings, however, death as the end of all human beings is not for all human beings. Because for a number of human beings, they will meet their end in a change that does not involve death. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 to 17, 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and following. The new covenant community is obliged, therefore, obligated if you want to use that word, obliged to live in this time in between, the time in between the resurrection and the parousia or the time in between the, two, the change of situation and the change of condition universally, we are obliged as the Christian community, as all saints. This happens to be All Saints Day, which is kind of a, a weird thing if you see it in the Roman Catholic sense, but it also can be celebrated if you understand that Christ died for all saints, but also died for all people. But the New Covenant community is obliged to live in this time in between in the expectation of the imminence of that event the parousia of Jesus Christ, the consummation of that which was inaugurated with his resurrection. We are to live in imminent expectation, not of the disappearance of a few billion people, but of the restoration of all things. This consummation in Hebrews is called the second appearing of our great archpriest. Amen.